MC Podcast. Good evening and welcome to our SMC conversation on race, justice, and the church. Uh, for those of you outside of our conference or who don't know me, my name is Eric Waskowitz, and I am the Director of Coaching and Training uh, for the Southern Michigan Conference. Uh, I don't think we need to make much of a case for why this conversation uh, is so important and so critical for us uh, tonight and in this season of the life of our nation and our church. Um, the, the issues related to racial injustice uh, continue to plague our nation and continue to plague our church. And uh, in the last few weeks, it's come to a boiling point again, as it has many times throughout our history, um, as we have we've witnessed and uh, read stories on the news and social media and seen videos um, related to the murder of uh, African-Americans, Ahmaud Arbery. Brianna Taylor, and um, per perhaps the, the one that has um, you know, most reignited this conversation is the murder of George Floyd on that street in Minneapolis several weeks ago. And uh, we have intentionally phrased the, the title of our conversation tonight to include the word church. Uh, this is a conversation about race, justice, and the church, because as the people of God, um, for us, this is not just a political issue. It's not just a philosophical issue. Uh, this is a gospel issue. Um, we believe that all human beings have been created to bear the image of God, that God has created us to be one with him and one with one another. And sin is a distortion of that. Uh, sin brings division between us and God and us and one another. And racism is one of the enemy's greatest tools of division. And, and yet we believe that through the life, the death and resurrection of Jesus, uh, he, made, he remade us into being one with God and one another. And the Apostle Paul writes that uh, Jesus broke down the barriers and the dividing walls of hostility. He made two groups, one that his purpose was to bring one new humanity. And so as a church, we're called to live out uh, that vision. And uh, too often, we, we've fallen short of that. We've fallen short of that vision uh, in, in the church at large and um, even in our free Methodist church. And uh, as free Methodists, we uphold the dignity and worth of all persons. Um, if you haven't done so already, I, I highly encourage you uh, to read our Book of Discipline section on the dignity and worth of all persons, specifically with regards to racism. Uh, we're not going to read that tonight because we want to give enough time for this conversation. Um, but, but this is core uh, to who we are as a people of God and who we are as free Methodists. Uh, I want to just give a few preliminary thoughts before um, we introduce our wonderful panel here. Um, as a panel, uh, we, we want to be very clear that this is a conversation starter. This is not the conversation. Um, there's, a, there's a lot to process uh, when it comes to matters of race, justice, and the church, and it, it's going to warrant uh, more than just a conversation 
for one, and, and more than just a, a conversation. Um, also, we have, we've discussed some key themes and topics uh, that we want to cover tonight, and so those will shape our conversation. Um, also, this conversation will primarily focus on dynamics related to, uh, to whites and to African Americans. We know um, that there are, are many people groups that are represented um, within our communities here in Southern Michigan, in our churches. Um, but we also acknowledge that in the United States, uh, we have a unique and, and often um, too ugly history when it comes to the dynamics between uh, whites and African Americans. And so, um, you know, for uh, sometimes people will say, why is this just a black and white issue? Well, we recognize it's bigger than that, but this is, this is a unique dynamic in our nation. And so uh, we need to frame the conversation around that tonight. Um, and with that said, uh, this conversation at times may be uncomfortable for you. And, and we wanna encourage you um, to embrace that. We need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, lastly, just kind of a technical thing. This is pre-recorded, um, but feel free to type comments and questions in the chat. As uh, we've already said, this is a conversation starter. And so we anticipate doing something like this again. And your questions and your comments will uh, give shape uh, and frame to uh, future conversations down the road. Well, with that said, uh, I'd love to have uh, each of our leaders on this panel uh, take a moment and introduce themselves. And so if you would share uh, who you are and where you're from and, and what your role is there, uh, that would be great. So I'm gonna begin with um, one of our newest ordinands, Reverend Uni Cunningham. Hi, so I'm Uni. Also, some of you know me as Maisha, and I'm the lead pastor at Ravenbrook Recovery Church, which is in Jackson. Very good. Thanks for being here, Pastor Uni. So, Hi, all right. I'm Dr. Sheila Houston, and I'm with the Detroit Redford Free Methodist Church, and I am the senior pastor there. Thank I'm you, George. Sheila. I'm Sheila's husband. I'm also a lead pastor at Stonehaven Free Methodist in Troy. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor George. Jeff Harold. I'm Jeff Harold. I'm the um, founding pastor and senior pastor at um, New Beginners Community Church of Washtenaw County, also a past director of the African Heritage Network of the Free Methodist Church USA. Thanks My name is Monica Harold. I'm married to Jeff Harold. I am a member of New Beginnings Community Church of Washtenaw County, and I currently serve on the executive board of the African Heritage Network. Well, thank you all for being here and uh, for participating in this important conversation uh, tonight. Um, we are so grateful for your voices and uh, look forward to, to what's going to be shared here. So our first question tonight that we wanted to just spend some time discussing, and, and everyone's going to speak to this one, uh, why do you think the response to the George Floyd murder has been so significant? You know, we unfortunately, we've seen so many uh, murders of, of African-American men and women, uh, often at the hands of police brutality. Um, but there's been a unique outcry uh, after the George Floyd murder. And so um, what is it about that one that has been so significant? And I'll start with you, Pastor Uni. 
For me, I think um, it's, it's a combination of things, but I'll speak to one, and that's the COVID. Mm-hmm. And at how COVID uh, really just stopped America. It stopped the world in its tracks. And in doing so, people weren't as distracted. So, you know, we couldn't go to our normal schools. We couldn't go to our extracurricular activities, church. We couldn't meet in person. And so I I believe people had a lot of pent up energy. And so when this, um, when George Floyd was murdered, it was like an explosion of of already racial tension, to be honest. Um, For me personally, I, when I think about George, uh, George Floyd's murder, I'm reminded of all of the other uh, men and women who were murdered and at how um, this isn't the first time. This yeah. isn't the first time. And, and we've been crying out. People just haven't been listening. And so I think a lot of it too has to do with the newer generation. They are a lot more brave and they are just going forward and they do not care um, about their voices being silenced. They're, they're refusing to be silent. Yeah. Thank you. Jeff, why do you think the response has been so significant? Well, um, to pick up where um, Maisha left off, I think it was watching the way he died. So there's always been this backdrop of police have to make split second decisions about life and death and we're not there to judge and did he have a gun and bringing up criminal past. But the public watched for eight minutes and 46 mm. seconds, and we even know the time, eight minutes for 46 seconds, a police officer with his knee on his neck, while two other officers um, held down his body while he was handcuffed, while another officer in essence redirected traffic to tell everybody to go about their business. It was slow, it was callous, it was, it was a prime example of everything that folks have always felt about police brutality for the world to see. And it has been so dramatic that it has sparked protests around the world. It just laid bare what folks have been saying about police brutality and it was out there for all the world to see. And it was, it was just way too much. Mm-hmm. And as um, Maisha said, it just lit the spark and it turned into a flame. Yeah. yeah. Jeff, as I think about that, I'm reminded of uh, several years ago, there was a film that came out and it won Best Picture for the Oscars, uh, 12 Years a Slave. And there's a, there's a, a gruesome scene in that film, a, a lynching scene that lasts for several minutes. And I remember reading an interview with the director and he was sharing how many were, were actually cautioning him about including that film in the scene or maybe shorten it. He said he used a film technique that's called the long take. He wanted to use the long take so people could sit with just how horrific that was. And, I, you know, for me, I think about the George Floyd video. I, I thought it was a long take for America. You, you could not, I mean, like you said, we know the amount of time, eight minutes and 46 seconds. You could not turn your head from that. Um, you know, the, there's a lot of other videos where, Things happen very quickly, and it, it's over in a minute or two. And um, but but this one, there was no denying what you saw. So I, I think you're you're absolutely right there, George. What? Why do you think this has been so significant? Well, I think it came right on the heels of information about mm. 
black people being disproportionately affected by the coronavirus. And so uh, you have all of these things uh, happening. And then you also had uh, just right at that same time, an uh, incident that happened in New York City in Central Park, where Amy Cooper uh, called mm -hmm. the police on a African-American murderer uh, by the name Mr. Cooper. And she basically said that this black man is threatening me. And she weaponized the police, something that is done on a regular basis in this country. And so I think all of these things together were in the news. And so uh, people reacted to all of these things, not just the one. Yeah. Dr. Sheila, what are your thoughts on the George Floyd outcry? I think part of it was, for me, is that the, the America has been in such an uproar anyway of division in the last four whatever years and the outcry of just wanting a change and people hating each other and hate coming out from so many different ways and people are been protesting. But for me, I think the biggest outcry was when the community that was standing around were crying out, asking them to stop. And they continued to mm. keep, he continued to keep his knee on him. And we don't know because we don't see if there were children that were around as well. And I just wanna say that the outcry has not just been for men and women, but it's been for our children as well because mm. children have been getting killed as well. Yeah. How about you, Monica? I think that um, the reason that was so impactful, as everybody has said, is because so many things have been happening. Uh, you know, you had the, the release of the video of Ahmaud Aubrey, and that had happened months before the video was released. I think the real time and the closeness of everybody being able just to watch this and people literally watching this man be murdered, and it wasn't a TV show, and it wasn't something that happened a long time ago. This was recent and in the proximity of, of so many people that happened in the neighborhood. I happen to have a niece and a great niece that live in that neighborhood where that happened. Um, and so for people to be able to watch him and to watch them mock him as he cried out. And I think for many people, um, the fact that this man cried out for his mother as his mm -hmm. life was ebbing out, it just, it just, it was too much. Mm -hmm. It was the straw that broke the camel back. It was that catalyst. It was that moment <laughs> <laughs> that the catalyst that just yeah. sparked a lot of things um, that people just a lot of pent up things. And I think that a big part of it was um, having those officers tell other people who were trying to, you know, protest or say he can't breathe with him to make to make people stand back and watch this man die. I think that had a lot to do with why this one, this instance, in, in light of so many that had happened, uh, lit such a fire in the nation. Yeah, well, thank you all for sharing about that. Um, so one of the things that, that we feel is really important for this conversation uh, is language and, and the terms and the phrases we use and, and how we define them. And I, I think one that's really important for us to just spend some time talking about right off the bat is this idea of systemic racism. You know, so we hear, 
you know, we, we hear people say, well, I'm not a racist. So there's this idea of personal or individual racism, but then there's systemic racism. And it's important that we understand the distinction between the two. And so Monica, could you help us define systemic racism? How would you define that? I define systemic racism as a collection of processes, procedures, policies that are intentionally put in place that benefit and that protect white people and that disadvantage and harm people of color. Yeah. Jeff, you want to speak to that some more too? Yeah, I agree with um, what Monica was saying. And you can take it further that it is not just behaviors, but in America, it has been a, a codified um, system, a legal system that started with the exclusion um, in the um, um, benefits of the Constitution that ran through slave codes to control slavery. Um, I'm reminded of the Dred Scott decision, and this is always kind of seminal to me, because in the 1857 Dred Scott decision, Dred Scott was a runaway slave. He wasn't runaway, he went north with his master, thought because he was in a free, free um, state, he could be free. It went to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court reaffirmed his slavery. And in that, Roger Taney, who was the Chief Justice, wrote these words that um, have lingered to this day. We said, in the opinion of the court, the legislation and histories of the times and the language used in the Declaration of Independence show that neither the class of persons who have been imported as slaves nor their descendants, whether they had become free or not, were then acknowledged as a part of the people nor intended to be included in the general words of that memorable instrument. They had for more than a century before been regarded as beings of an inferior order and altogether unfit to associate with the white race, either in social or political relations, and so far inferior that they had no rights which the white man was bound to respect and that the Negro might justly and lawfully be reduced to slavery for his benefit. And I'm always reminded that's not um, um, a skinhead or a, mm -hmm. a planner. That was the Supreme Court Justice, yeah. Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. As late as um, 2015, a Michigan um, attorney, Sam um, McCargo, wrote an article in the Michigan Bar Journal asking the question, can the Supreme Court unring the bell that Tanny rung about the inferiority of mm. African Americans in the eyes of the court? And from that, you have seen laws from Jim Crow laws to incarceration laws that kind of still bring that stigma that Tanny brought in that Supreme Court decision. And I think it's important to remember that when we talk about this system, that it impacts not only it, that it's a social, legal, and economic system and impacts all components of, um, of life in America and the way that it impacts people of color particularly uh, and the harm that it brings to them and the disadvantages. And I think that it's important to remember that these things are codified and they're all systems of um, social control. So when we talk about um, things that are going on and, and um, the, the different types of social control 
that have been in place as a result of systemic racism. You know, we think of it as sometimes starting with slavery and you had the black codes and you had the mm -hmm. Jim Crow laws and our most current system of social control is mass incarceration. So all these things have been put in place to control and to um, really in many ways dehumanize people of color, particularly black people. Wow. And to make money. Mm. Right, and that's where the economic part comes in. Absolutely. And I, I just want to say that that the, the church was really complicit in the establishment of laws. They had to develop a, a theological foundation mm -hmm. in order to say these things, you know, and so therefore you even had uh, some who feel that even though blacks were, you know, inferior, whatever, that they still did, did not deserve to be treated like they were being treated in slavery. And it, in some cases, uh, resulted in the splitting of churches where you had a Southern version mm -hmm. of it and a Northern version of it. Uh, not necessarily that the Northern version would disagree with Tammy, that the Blacks were, you know, basically a subspecies and inferior, but they still didn't think they should be treated like that. And so even though legally, some of these things may have been removed. Uh, you still have the momentum that they created mm -hmm. in effect today in the United States. So that, that, that mentality that Blacks are inferior and that uh, they deserve to be treated in a manner that is cruel and that seeks to uh, control them in a way that really is not humane that that remains. That's part of the remnants of a system that was developed in this country. Yeah. Thank you, Pastor George. I think that's really important. You know, I'll, I'll hear people even say sometimes, well, you know, slavery was abolished. Jim Crow's not around anymore. The laws have changed. Does systemic racism still exist? And you can't, you can't undo 400 years of systemic racism just by changing some laws. And, and as you said, the vestiges of that still exist. And, um, and then there's, you know, to Monica's point about mass incarceration, there's other ways that this is still, um, you know, that this is still being propagated. And, uh, and so that's important for us to understand, I think, here right from the outset. Um, that systemic racism, we're not just talking about something that existed in the past. Um, we're talking about something that still exists in many ways today. Um, and, and it exists in the church as well. And so it's, it's difficult, you know, I'm finding to talk about systemic racism without talking also about white supremacy. And as Pastor Jeff already alluded to, um, when, when we talk about white supremacy, we're not we're not talking about skinheads or you know, men in robes walking around with burning torches. Um, not again, only those things. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, um, we're, we're again talking about something that has uh, continued um, to exist as a result of these systems and structures. And so, Pastor Jeff, would you speak more to that? What, when, you know, when we talk about you know, white supremacy beyond just you know, individuals, going around um, promoting this, you know, what are we talking about when we talk about just the, the system, the structure of white supremacy? Well, one thing you can talk about, again, you can talk about uh, attitudes, you can talk about 
behaviors, you can talk about laws, you can talk about representations. I heard on the news this morning that the, um, I, I believe it's the Museum of Natural History in New York, um, they are um, planning to remove a statue of Theodore Roosevelt mm -hmm. um, because the statue has Theodore Roosevelt on a horse with a Native American and a African American walking alongside of him. And they just saw this as a visual demonstration of white supremacy. Um, and so when you look at white supremacy, it is all the laws and it is the um, um, systems that preference whites over, over um, blacks and other minorities. And as um, Pastor Sheila mentioned about economics, there was a study that came out from the um, Federal Reserve of St. Louis in 2017 that said that whites, um, white households with a less than a high school education had a higher um, net worth than black households with a college degree. And so whether we're talking about the preference in housing with redlining, um, getting loans, um, this whole system is set there to privilege whites over African-Americans. And it continues where you can have an Amy Cooper, as George mentioned, know that she can weaponize her whiteness by just saying, I'm in danger from a black man, um, demonstrate what has become known as white girl tears. She cries. It's just a, a, a marvel that he was not, he was not killed because the police came out because of her privilege um, and took her word over his immediately. Yeah, and so with white supremacy comes a, another phrase that uh, you know, I found for, for many white people is a difficult phrase for them to hear and wrestle with, but, but we need to, and that is white privilege. And Monica, you wanna to speak to that? Yeah, you know, when we talk about the issue of white privilege, what we're talking about is where, a, again, a system where um, because of a color of a person's skin, they have inherent benefits. They have inherent uh, things that they feel that they can do, things that they are allowed to do, uh, simply because they're white. So, you know, one of the things I thought about was something that recently happened. Uh, on the African Heritage Network uh, Facebook page, um, Jeff put up a Happy Father's Day post and it had a picture and it said, Black Dads Matter. Mm -hmm. And there was a, a, a white person who apparently looks at the page, decided that they need to, that she needed to also add, and so do brown and yellow and red and, and other dads. And then to put up the little song of Jesus loves, you know, the words to Jesus loves little children. Now, to me, that was an example of white privilege, that you can go on a page that is specifically about by and for African-Americans, and you decide that for somebody to say Black dads matter, you need to explain to them that that is the, the model is that everybody matters. We know that. 
Um, but it is a system that whereby white people are and feel that they are entitled to just do whatever they want to, that they can say and they can be a part of and they can interrupt and they can tell other people what to do and how to do it. So I don't know how many people saw it, but there was a, a, a thing on, on the news where this man was uh, painting Black Lives Matter on his property. And this white lady and white man were taping him and were telling him he had to quit because he was doing something illegal. He was defacing somebody's property. And uh, he says, I'm not doing anything legal. And they said, yes, you are. And he said, no, I'm not. Um, and they said, yes, because you're defacing somebody else's property. And he said, do you know the people? And they, they said to him, yes, I, the lady said, I know them personally. And it was his own property that he was doing. So it's this, this idea that white people are entitled and they have the privilege of saying and doing and speaking up about whatever. And not only that they feel that way, but that things operate that way. Mm. So there are privileges that you have that other people don't have. And it's all, only thing that gives you that privilege is that, that you're white. That's right, I yeah. Give, yeah. I give the example of in the church, Please. Monica, you reminded me of something that happened to me a few years back. I was um, at the church and me and George and I were assistant pastors and, and I was in the middle of preaching and I hadn't finished it. And the lead pastor who was white decided that he decided he's going to come up and take over the pulpit wow. in the middle of me preaching. And I had two choices at that time. I could act a fool, or I knew that my kids were in the in the in the audience as well as other people, or I can just play it off and deal with it later. But to me, that was an example to me of white privilege. And, and did he do anything different or better than I could have finished it up? No. But the point was when I did address him and speak mm. to him, he didn't see anything wrong with it. Mm. And I think that's key too, Sheila, because very often people don't see where they did anything wrong with what they did. They don't, they feel like this is the right thing to do. And I think that's part of the privilege that you just don't even see that you did something wrong. Yeah. Because we've that's been we've been conditioned to think a certain way. Right. And this yeah. is just the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Another example uh, would be how people tried to silence Colin Kaepernick's uh, protest. Mm. He was nonviolent. He was peaceful. He was making a statement about police brutality. And yet um, white people told him not to protest the way that he was protesting. So the fact that someone can look at someone else's pain and then tell them, I don't like the way you're you're expressing it, you need to change the way you're expressing it, yeah. really um, gets to what white privilege looks like. Yeah. We can't even have our pain and express it. Yeah, right. because it makes, it makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Laura Ingram told the basketball player, shut up and dribble. Right. And it wasn't just white people, it was from the top. Mm. Yeah. The White House began yeah. to complain about him. Yeah. And we're but talking you, about systems. Yeah. But you know, the one thing I want to say is that the whole system was made to advantage some. So if you have a system, and, and I'm, I'm going back to the, 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 the roots here, the whole system was made to advantage whites 
and to disadvantage blacks. Mm -hmm. And so when we see that still happening, you know, when most, most white people I know, if they call the police, they expect good things to happen. Right. They, they expect the police are going to come. They're going to listen to what they have to say. They're going to be reasonable. They're going to respond. And, and you know, as an African-American person, I've had that experience a number of times, but I've also had a number of times when I've had them point a gun at me. Uh, Jeff asked the question, uh, how, how old were you when the first time that a police officer pulled the gun at me? And for African-American males, um, I, I don't think there was one that could mm. say it's never happened. If it did, I, I, I might have missed it. But it is something that our experiences are not necessarily the other experiences. And so when people see the police as their friends and they're to protect and to serve, and if you're African-American, you're like, okay, who are they protecting and who are they serving? And so when we talk about privilege we're talking about even your your outlook a lot of times on things is totally different uh, sometimes when you travel you you as african-american male you have to research where you can travel i mean they used to have a green book but now we may not do that but you still have to be very much aware some places is better not to go because of a history of how they deal with african-americans and so you asked a question about white privilege and we are doing this um, for the Southern Michigan Conference, although it'll be um, viewed other places. The most graphic example of white privilege that I've seen in many of years is when a group of folks went to the state capital of the state of Michigan with long guns yeah. and semi-automatic rifles, went into the Capitol building, into the chamber, with rifles, took pictures of themselves posing with state policemen, and absolutely nothing happened to them. And I remember when the Black Panthers did the same thing in, this, in the state of California, and I, I forget which Panther it was, said that when they went through the doors onto the floor, they knew they were in trouble because it was illegal to bring guns on the floor um, of the um, state capitol, and they went to prison. And the, and the question in the state of Michigan was, is the Capitol Police going to ban these protesters from coming in with guns? And it was a, we need to think about that. Mm -hmm. This may be non-scientific and it may be anecdotal, but I'm not a gambling man but I would put money down in Vegas that if a group of black men took long guns and rifles to the state capitol, marched into the capitol door, took over the state capitol on the floor, the National Guard would be called out, the state police would be called out, the courts would be full, they would be in jail, and somebody would be dead. I would take that bet from you because I would bet they wouldn't get that far. I'm telling you, they wouldn't have got down the street in Lansing. Yeah. And, and, and you think about that, right? Um, and I don't want to belabor this point because I know we have to move on. But you have men, grown men who go and they go with these guns and they go with a display of artillery on their chest and they get to protest and they get to take pictures. Tamir Rice, 12-year-old kid, yeah. 
couple of seconds by police showing up was dead because he was playing with a toy gun. Right. Yeah. And I, I, yeah, go ahead, Monica. Sorry. No, I'm just saying it, 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 it boggles the imagination. Yeah. Yeah. And it is a, it's a powerful and, and ugly picture of white privilege because, you know, most of, most of those folks who went to the Capitol building thought this is my right. This is my privilege. Um, I get to do this. And, and I think, you know, Monica, I've heard you speak to this before. Um, when we talk about white supremacy and white privilege. So yes, there are those who, who consciously go around with the torches and, you know, skinheads and that, but, um, for, for all of us, there's this element of it just exists, whether we're conscious of it or not, whether we're intentionally feeding into it or not. Um, white supremacy and uh, white privilege in our nation exists. So I read this quote recently from a great African-American author, James Baldwin. He wrote, white people are still trapped in a history which they do not understand. And until they understand it, they cannot be released from it. So it's, it's, a, it's a sickness that has its hold on us. And until we're aware of it, uh, we cannot be released from it. And as people of faith, we have a very unique perspective because as I read my Bible, the only one who's supreme is Christ. And, and so if any, if any group or if any person, any individual is prized above another, uh, that's satanic. Um, that, that goes against... Uh, who God has created and called us to be. So on that note, kind of shifting gears a little bit as we think about the church, uh, I want to read another excerpt, and this comes from uh, Dr. Dr. Martin Luther King's um, powerful letter uh, from a Birmingham jail. This was written in 1963, and Dr. King was writing to a group of white pastors who um, were uncomfortable with his methods and his timing, and so, I mean, again, another example here of, of white privilege. And so Dr. King responds to them very eloquently. And at one point in the letter, he says there's, there's two great disappointments he has. The first is he's disappointed with the white moderate. And the second disappointment is the white church or specifically white church leaders. And, uh, and he uses this, this very helpful metaphor. He writes, so here we are moving toward the exit of the 20th century with a religious community largely adjusted to the status quo, standing as a taillight behind other community agencies rather than a headlight leading men to higher levels of justice. I reread that a few weeks ago and thought Dr. King could have written this, you know, three days ago and it would be just as appropriate. Um, and so when I think about that image of the church being a taillight, as opposed to a headlight leading men and women to higher levels of justice. Why is it that the white church, and specifically for us free Methodists, which here in the United States is overwhelmingly a white church and true also in Southern Michigan, why is it that we so often uh, are a taillight, not a headlight, that we, we lag behind when it comes to this fight for justice? Um, so Jeff, I'm gonna ask you to respond to that one first. Well, I would say one reason is that we reflect culture. Um, we are made up of the culture that we exist in and we bring 
our habits, our culture into the body. We bring um, the flesh, we bring um, who we are into the body. Um, Monica and I have a, um, a phrase in our household that racism is the sin that defies conversion. It mm. just seems to, to go along with us unless we actively push back on it. Mm. The culture will dictate. Um, we will wow. flow with the culture. And it takes a lot to stand up to the culture that we're in, um, not just within the church itself, but within our neighborhoods, within mm. our families. And so if the church is not committed to being a prophetic voice, it will just flow with the currents of, of the culture. Wow. Racism, how, how'd you say it, Jeff? Racism is the sin that devise con, or defies conversion? Defies conversion. Yeah, oh, that's powerful. Yeah. Monica, why do you think it is that uh, the church and specifically the Free Methodist Church tr struggles when it comes to the fight for racial justice? I think there are two primary things. One is fear and the other is comfort. Um, I think that a lot of people are afraid of what happens if we address this. They're, they're afraid of what will happen to the, the church as a body. You know, how will the complexion of the church change? And they're afraid of what will happen to them individually with their personal relationships and their personal standings if they speak up about something. I think the other thing is comfort. I mean, it's a very comfortable place. I would dare say that most people in Southern Michigan are surrounded by people that look like them, that feel like them, that think like them. And so that's comfortable. I mean, most of us tend to uh, are surround ourselves with people that affirm us. There's enough in the world that comes against us that we tend to surround ourselves with people that affirm what we think, what we believe, and how we act. And so I think that one of the reasons we lag behind is because we're afraid of what will happen. We don't want to lose that comfort. And for many people, this is the way it's supposed to look. This is just the way it is. It's that, it's that innate, uh, people, some people call it unconscious bias mm -hmm. that we have that says, well, you know, I don't see anything wrong with this. And so if you don't see something wrong with it, then you won't think there's anything to fix. Pastor Uni, in a previous conversation, you shared um, just some reflections on our free Methodist history and look at, looking at some different eras along the way where it just seemed like the free Methodist church seemed to be silent or was lagging behind. Could, could you speak to that a little bit? Uh, yeah. So when I was taking history and polity quite a while ago, <laughs> uh, that conversation came up. And it, it wasn't intentional, actually. Uh, the civil rights movement somehow got into the conversation. And so we got to looking around and, and looking through things, and, and we all realized that the FMC was largely silent during the 60s um, civil rights movement. And, and now this, what we're going through right now is a civil rights movement as well. And as your, your quote of being in the taillight instead of the headlight, I feel like even in this moment, we are still being the taillight. Mm. Um, we're trying to play catch up with that. And, and I think a lot speaking to um, Mrs. Harold when she was speaking about the comfort, I, I think that that is a huge factor in this and why the FMC has not been engaging because everyone was comfortable to say, I have free Methodist roots, we were against slavery. Mm. 
So we were against slavery, so everything is fine. You know, we, I have a black friend. Uh, you know, everything is fine. And so, you know, I think, I think that the cutting point is even, the cutting off point is when you think about um, Abe Lincoln and when he freed the slaves, he freed the slaves, but he also stated that they did not have the rights, nor did they ever should have the rights to be considered equal. So there is a huge difference between advocating for someone and advocating for those to, to have uh, fair justice and just saying, well, slavery doesn't exist, so everything's fine. I think it's yeah. interesting that in our history, people like to hearken back to B.T. Roberts. <laughs> um, and I often wonder, do we not have anybody since B.T. Roberts that yeah. has been against injustice, that has yeah. been against discrimination, that has been against racism. And I think that in of itself is a condemnation of us as yeah. a denomination. Yeah, at some point when the only abolitionist or the only person you hear in your denominational story about fighting for justice is the founder, um, then we have some reassessing to do. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think that one of the things that is, is somewhat problematic is that there's oftentimes a lack of relationship with those that are, are in the struggle. Yuni uh, mm. talked about uh, this is our current civil rights and, uh, you know, most whites don't even think about, I need to fight for my civil rights. They, they, they take it as a granted that they have that. Yeah. But yet you have people who feel that, they still are being denied basic things. And so uh, people that only read about it on the news or that hear about it that is filtered through other channels, uh, they're, they're getting bits and pieces of information. I think one of the things that will make us more the headlights instead of the taillights is for us to, to really develop relationships, meaningful relationships, mm -hmm. that instead of just telling people that are in the struggle what they're doing wrong, you know, why are you complaining about his knee on your neck? You know, you, you shouldn't be doing that. Uh, they need to, you know, enter in, build, build some relationships, come alongside and, and experience some of this with them and talk to them, get right there with them. And, and if you got your proposals, you know, don't, don't tell them what to do. Tell them, you, you go out there and figure out what can you do to make it better. You know, it's easy for me to tell somebody else, this is what you should do. Mm -hmm. But for us to say, here's how we can enter in this together. Here's how we can make a difference. This is something that we can do to be the headlights instead of the telephone. That's right, yeah. And, and as I, a true I, partnership I, where I one's not coming with an agenda. Yeah. Can I add to that? Yeah, please, Dr. Also, Sheila. I would like to say power. People don't like to let go of their power. Let's look mm. at the power. Let's look at our general conference that we just had recently. Uh -oh. That was still about power. We didn't want to release that power. Mm. We had an opportunity to make a huge change. And you better believe people were voting. You know, they were voting. Oh no, we're gonna get a woman in, or or we we ain't gonna get no African American in this time, but we gonna we gonna get a woman in. So we have to look at it. We got to look at power. People don't want to let go of their power. And I was going to add something to what George was saying about relationships. And so um, when you have relationships and especially relationships of justice, and you are part of the conversation for justice in your community. And so to use your um, analogy of headlights, 
when you get in the dark, you turn on your headlights. Mm -hmm. Okay. When you get to a moment like this, you turn on your headlights. And if you've had those relationships, if you are known for justice, if you're known for standing up for civil rights, when the struggle happens, people tap into you and they bring you into Mm -hmm. the conversation because they want you into the conversation because they know that you will be an active part of the struggle for justice. They trust you. Um, And if we've got relationships with folks that are doing the work. Now, one thing we have to maybe get over is that we don't have to agree with everything that everyone is doing. We don't have to agree with everything they believe in, but we can partner with organizations over issues of justice. I'll cut this off right here by saying this. Back in, I believe it was the 80s, Sun Young Moon was um, 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 being basically um, sued by the Internal Revenue Service because they said he was not a church. And partnered with him was every leading evangelical um, leader and denomination because the issue at, at bay was the government does not get to say who is a church. Now, after that, they're gonna go tell folks, don't get with the Unification Church, it's a cult, but on that issue, they were friend of the court briefs because the government did not get to say who was a church. And we can partner with mm-hmm. organizations, right. um, with civil rights issues and justice issues. Yeah. And they can trust us on that. No, we don't agree with the other stuff, but they could trust us on this thing. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So, you know, one of the things we've said already is that uh, defining and understanding terms is important, language is important. And I, I think a, another, another term or phrase that speaks to a lot of what has been processed here already is um, the, the distinction between being not racist and anti-racist. So, you know, I hear a lot of people say, well, I'm not racist, I'm personally not racist, but there's a difference between that and doing the work of anti-racism. And so, um, Pastor Uni, would you share with us a little bit when, when you hear that, you know, when you hear anti-racism, what does that mean to you? Uh, when I hear anti-racism, I immediately think of action. Hmm. Um, to be anti is to be against something. Well, in order to be against something, you have to do something. You have to show that you are against something. You have to prove that you are against something. And, and so to versus just an individual being racist, we know what that looks like, uh, but to be anti-racist, however, is something that I think a lot of people are dropping the ball. Um, and, and that ties into microaggressions. And I'm gonna jump ahead into that because it, it really does tie into that. Um, and, and the reason why is because with microaggressions, they're often these subtle um, actions or comments that perpetuate a harmful environment or negative prejudices. And so when you have these microaggressions like, oh, you speak so well, or you know, you might clutch your bag when a black man walks by, or you may automatically ask the Asian American kid, hey, I need you to help me with my math homework. Well, maybe they're not good at math. And yet we perpetuate those. And so those microaggressions we can see um, clearly in forms of racism, but to be anti-racist is fighting against even those microaggressions. It's, it's not just also um, what you do in the community, but it's also what you're doing with yourself, specifically with the black community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. 
So Pastor Jeff, what would be the impact of anti-racism in our churches and in our conference, both the cost and the benefit? I mean, what, what's the impact of anti-racism? So if you're looking at anti-racism, and as um, 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 Pastor Uni has said, you're talking about deconstructing racism, actively mm-hmm. deconstructing it in terms of um, laws and policies and procedures. As Pastor Sheila talked about, it becomes a shift in power. One thing that you will see if we are truly anti-racist is you will see um, culture shift. Um, some of the things that we do culturally that benefit one culture, you may, not, you may not see anymore as you bring more people in and you begin to share the decision-making about what we do. And so some of the traditions will change. They will naturally change as you bring more people in. Some of the benefits of anti-racism is that you're reaching larger populations for Christ. And so if we take this to a larger issue of of, of being anti-racist and addressing issues of social economics, back to that study about um, 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 white households with less than a high school education having more um, net worth than black households with a college education. This is a direct issue for evangelism. And so um, it used to be when I was back in seminary, the um, stat was that it takes 60 whites to, um, um, for what it would take 60 whites in the church to do, it would take 300 um, folks in the inner city. That brings issues for evangelism. Um, as you're dealing with anti-racist policies with, with, with economics, um, whether the person can be bivocational, how they can um, um, minister, what type of funding comes up, um, whether they can send folks to the mission field. All of these things become benefits of anti-racism because not only are we um, affecting the culture, we're affecting economically what happens within the church. And we're affecting, um, as um, Pastor Sheila said, the education of children. It is just a whole justice issue Mm -hmm. of one of the benefits of anti-racism. We transform this society and it's for the good of, of, now this is where you get to the all people matter. When we talk about sharing of wealth, okay, when we talk about sharing of um, legislative priorities, sharing power within the church, um, there's some definite benefits to anti-racism. Yeah, yeah, thanks for sharing that. So we've spent a lot of time talking about the problem you know, this problem of systemic racism and white supremacy in our nation and in our church. And we're, we're beginning to look at some solutions. How do we disrupt? How do we dismantle systemic racism? And, and it's interesting, the, the more I think about this, especially in light of the, the COVID-19 experience we're in, you know, we, we're hearing you know, every day about this global pandemic. And there's no cure, there's no vaccine yet. And so everyone's just trying to figure out what is this thing. And even the more I've learned about this, these viruses, they mutate and they change and they adapt. And I, I think in many ways, um, we think about systemic racism, it is a disease, it is a sickness that has adapted over time. Um, but the good news is, uh, especially as the people of God, uh, there are some ways that we can combat this thing. And there, there are some treatments. There are some things that we can do to dismantle it. And so, um, 
as we kind of near the end here, back to this metaphor, how can our churches, and specifically, how can the Southern Michigan Conference be a headlight when it comes to uh, racial justice? So what I hear this all the time, what can I do? What can we do to address uh, the systemic racism and white supremacy that exists in our communities, our nation, our churches? And I, I'd love for, for each of you to just speak to that. What are some specific, tangible things that we could be doing? I think one of the first things you have to do is to acknowledge that it exists. Um, until you believe that something is there, you don't really act on it. Yeah. So acknowledge that it exists. I think that the other thing you can do is to get involved. There are lots of ways to be involved besides going out and protesting in things that are anti-racist. Um, find places and find people that are um, of a different mindset than you are and begin to, li to listen and to, to learn. Uh, and to go beyond just lamenting, as we, we've been talking about. I think that one of the things that you can do is to, um, I, I want to give kudos at this point to our own superintendent, Bruce Rhodes. And I think that he published a very courageous letter that has some definite action steps and things that he expects mm -hmm. the uh, pastors of the conference when they know their uh, congregants are and when they, you know, see instances of racism to address it, mm -hmm. that he's uh, asking and, and, you know, leading the way and expecting people to get themselves involved in training that will help them understand and address issues of racism. Um, our own associate pastor, Lord Reverend Dr. Laura Hunt, is teaching a class uh, called uh, Be the Bridge, which is expressly uh, created for white people who want to understand issues of racism and perhaps how to become anti-racism. So I think that you can begin to look around, individual, and I'm talking individually now, mm -hmm. uh, uh, for things that will help you read some things, mm -hmm. um, you know, beyond, I don't even know what people read these days, mm -hmm. you know, but Facebook. there are authors out there, there are people out there, there are good books that won't necessarily affront, there are Christians who can help you think through some of these things. And I think a big part of it is, mm -hmm intentionally set out to educate yourself about things. I just want to share this one little thing. I have a, a friend, um, and um, I won't go into all the details, but she's a white friend, and we are probably diametrically opposed when it comes to issues of race in many ways. Mm -hmm. I can guarantee you she does not consider herself a racist. Um, but one of the things that happened when all this stuff broke out, she sent me a text, and all it said was, thank you for the courageous conversations. And it was just that we would talk about things and I would give her my opinion and she, and I would listen to hers, which um, I think helped her. I don't think that she's at a point yet where she's ready to be anti-racist, but at least she acknowledged that there was something that she needed to learn. Yeah. There was something that um, about the way that she viewed the world that perhaps needed to be challenged. And I would say challenge yourself, challenge your own view of the world challenge your own worldview and actually see if it stands under the scrutiny of god in terms of how he has told us about justice and he has told us about mercy and mm -hmm. he has told us about walking humbly with him within his yeah. word yeah thank you monica so good dr sheila what can we do well first of all i just want to say that even when i spoke of power doesn't mean that i don't um, like our, our bishops today. So I just want to put that out there. Um, but I still 
believe that power plays a role. Mm -hmm. And for me, I think one of the things that people can do, they can learn about black and white racial divide. And they can do that, like I said earlier to you, that they can go on, and it's a study, it's a clear study of the color of compromise. And this study is dealing with the racial divide in the church. It's not talking about in the world, it's talking about in the church. And mm -hmm. I think if they would sit and watch these videos and if they want to watch them with me or you want to get the book, I think that's something that you can do to have an understanding of what's going on in this country. Because sometimes people just have a lack of knowledge. Um, and I just want to share a quick story. I have a friend and she's a, I have a white friend. No, I'm just kidding. I have a lot of friends that don't look like me, but her name is Rita. And when God began to deal with Rita, she's a free Methodist, but in Washington. And God began to deal with her when she was running this organization called New Horizons. And he began to tell her it needs to look like the church. And she had a lot of, they had a lot of volunteers and a lot of paid staff. And what she did was clean house by inviting people of color like myself and many others to come and she started hiring people of color but she not only hired us she put us in lead positions mm. and then she also put us on the executive team that ran the organization because she said that she felt like this is what god told her what that the church needs to look like what heaven would look like and so her change came and it took it took courage for her to do that and at times she had difficulties with some other people that were using excuses and still calling her racist, but I still would kind of encourage her. You know what? I see what God is doing to encourage her because sometimes it's people just bad attitudes. It's not always the issue, but the key was she took a step and she's never been the same ever since. And so I just invite the free Methodist denomination to be courageous mm. and not comfortable let's use the other c word called courageous mm. yeah amen thank you dr sheila pastor george what can we do well uh, i think we have to deal with the two areas that um monica spoke about one of them is our country mm. we we have to be comfortable being uncomfortable uh to be engaged i, I know most african-americans they're, they get caught up into racial issues, whether they want to or not. You cannot live in America and not be involved in some things that are just out now racial. You, you could want to live on an island by yourself, but, but that's not the case. So I encourage you to be comfortable being in those kinds of dialogue. Don't go along with everything that everybody around you say. Don't, don't just be silent. Your silence is often accepted as you agreeing with them. Mm -hmm. And be bold enough to develop relationships across racial and ethnic lines. Um, I hear occasionally people during the, the demonstrations, uh, they're saying they're tired of being the black friend. Uh, so a lot of people have one black friend. Every time something happens, they want to communicate with that black friend. Uh, develop friends, develop relationships. Uh, 
it's great that, that we have people here in the Southern Michigan Conference and, and we are willing to be in relationship. But if you're in a community and you have other African-American leaders yeah. there, you need to develop relationships with them. You don't need to just say, you know, the Bible says a brother at hand, uh, excuse me, a neighbor at hand is better than a brother far away. So mm -hmm. if you have someone there in your community that are engaged in the struggle, you, you want to be involved with them. So I would encourage you to do those two things. Yeah, that's good. Thank you, Pastor George. Pastor Uni, what can we do? Well, I would, I would tell you to, if, especially if you're co-vocational, to look at your field of choice that you work mm -hmm. in and start to make changes there, start to speak out, start to provide um, coaching if possible, um, but bring things up. So like if, for example, two, two very quick examples, if you work in the medical field, notice that black women are two and a half times likely, more likely than white women to die in childbirth. That looks like institutional racism within the healthcare system. You also look at the way COVID was, was expressed in, in and within the black community. So that shows you that there is a huge issue in even the healthcare. And so you can look at those, look at things at the, at like educational. You can look, we've mentioned the financial um, field. For me personally, I think about, I work in the recovery field. So I have seen um, how uh, drug court, for example, where I used to work, it's mostly all white. And why is that? Well, mass incarceration. Mm. So for, for black people, they're rarely in drug court and yet they could be facing the exact same charges that their white counterparts are facing, but they're allowed to go into drug court and, and have supervised drug tests mm. and have to go through recovery programs and in order to not have to face jail time. Mm. So looking to, to bring those things up and, and to try to, to provide change within your work field. Yeah, thank you. That's good. Pastor George, what can we do? Jeff, sorry, Pastor Jeff. Pastor George yeah. shared already. <laughs> so, um, you know, what, 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 what my um, colleagues and my beautiful wife have already said, um, I, I agree with. Um, one thing that Pastor Sheila said about, um, I like my current bishops now, but that's something that we also need to challenge because I may not know um, folks of mm -hmm. color, and they may be mm -hmm. just as good. If we're going to get rid of the old grown old boys network, we got to go past who we know. Um, we're talking about dismantling and being anti-racist. And it means that we are going to actively seek to dismantle racist structures in our community and things we see happening in the church. I always remember a friend of mine um, told me that he lived in a Southern state. His father was an attorney. And when Brown um, versus Board of Education happened, his father took him aside and said, son, this decision is right. It is right legally and it is right morally. But when you step outside those doors, it is segregation now and segregation forever. Mm -hmm. Now, I appreciate the fact, right, that his dad thought it was a right decision. Mm -hmm. But for those folks in his community, that inner court conversation was doing them absolutely no good. Yeah. And so... I would say that we are, are folks in, in positions of authority, um, in government, in business, and we begin to seek to dismantle structures. Mm -hmm. And we look around and we begin to not only ask the questions, but being able to accept the response of folks that say, something is not right here mm -hmm. racially. 
rather than going with the issue of, I don't see it, see it. Mm -hmm. um, open up our eyes so that we can see. One thing that um, I was reading through, I believe it was Jeremiah, and what God talked about was that his priests and his prophets basically failed in their duty to proclaim to the people what they were doing wrong, and they held responsibility for the captivity. And so when we look at our nation and this system of racial hierarchy, white supremacy, white privilege that has gone on for 400 years, um, we at least want to be able to say that the church, particularly the white church, pushed back with everything that it mm -hmm. had against this so that when we see Jesus, he will be able to say, well done, good and faithful yeah. servants. Not that we have left our work undone. Yeah. I think it's important for people to know that it's important to speak up. As Martin Luther King said at one point, in the end, we will not remember the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so important. Wow. Well, we've uh, covered a lot of ground tonight, and uh, I would love to just invite each of you to just share a brief closing thought um, to, to kind of wrap our time up. And then we're going to, we're going to identify just a few ways as a conference. We want to take some next steps. So um, I'll go in uh, reverse order that we just went in. So um, pastor Jeff, would you have a kind of a final thought and reflection for us tonight? Um, my final thought is that right now the, the nation is saying that it is time for a change. Be courageous and be part of history and bring about real and systemic changes in the racial um, justice in America. Yeah. Thank you. Good. Pastor Uni. I would, um, I, I love that. I, I would echo uh, what Pastor, Pastor Harold said about um, being part of the change. Um, one thing that I've learned um, is that silence does equal complacency. Mm -hmm. And so being part of that change and being bold enough, but yet gentle enough to take on those difficult conversations. Yeah, good, thank you. Pastor George, how about you? The Bible tells us that we should weep with those that weep and we should rejoice with those that rejoice. And so I would encourage each and every one of us to make sure that we are sensitive to those around us. But at the same time, we recognize that justice is something that God desires for all of us. So justice is not a civil rights issue. It's not a black white issue. It is a biblical issue. Right. So I encourage each and every one of us, let's be just in our dealings and let's seek justice for those that are oppressed. Yeah, that's great, thank you. Dr. Sheila. Well, Martin Luther King said the oppressed people cannot remain oppressed forever. The yearning for freedom eventually manifests itself. And so I just invite the church to be a part of that manifestation. Yeah. And yeah. I want to leave with this last thought. Know that there will be no black church without racism in the white church. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mrs. Harold. 
um, I guess my final thought would be a thought that I just shared. Hmm. We won't so much hear the voices of our enemies as we will the silence of our friends. Yeah, yeah, so important. Yeah. Well, thank you, each and every one of you, for um, speaking truth with love tonight. Uh, each of you have shared um, some very important and challenging things, but you've done so from a place of love. I know each and every one of you, you love Jesus, you love the church, and specifically you love the Free Methodist Church, and we are, we are so grateful for you. Um, you know, I, I shared with this group that there's been this tension in that uh, we feel as a overwhelmingly white denomination and conference, it, it is very important for us to, to listen to and learn uh, from our brothers and sisters of color. Um, but it is also, it is not your responsibility to educate us. And so, um, so our, our white brothers and sisters, especially who are watching tonight, uh, we need to take heed to the recommendations that were given in terms of next steps. And we need to educate ourselves and, and be willing to, to do this work. Um, but on behalf of Superintendent Bruce and Assistant Superintendent Dustin, um, we are so grateful for you uh, to participate, not only in this conversation, um, but to, to help us as we continue uh, to identify and dismantle whatever systemic racism exists even within uh, our conference and, and our region. Um, and and I'll, I'll close with this final thought, you know, as has been said several times already tonight, this is, this is a gospel issue. And, um, you know, the Apostle Paul uh, wrote to the, the church in Corinth that um, we have been reconciled to God and to one another through Christ, and then have been given the ministry of reconciliation. And so when we think about justice and we think about reconciliation, this is not a, a niche cause or passion. And too often we have marginalized groups that seem to be passionate about justice. And I'm so grateful that as a denomination, we have a, a justice network, but the Free Methodist Church, the Southern Michigan Conference ought to be a justice network in and of itself. This is the work that we are called to. This is the ministry that we have been given. And if we don't, if we don't take up that ministry of reconciliation, we will lose the next generation. Um, I've had a few young people reach out to me, even in the last few weeks with Free Methodist Connections and growing up in a Free Methodist Church expressing disappointment and in the silence as some of you have shared from some of their leaders. And um, I, I grieve the thought that my boys might arrive at an age where they'll say, dad, where's the free Methodist church on these issues? Um, my hope and prayer is that they're going to care deeply about justice and that they might find a home uh, in the free Methodist church for this fight against uh, racial injustice. And so um, the other thought I have just in closing, there's another C word. So we've talked about comfort and courage, but, but I think as some of you have already alluded to, we, we need to begin by just caring. Um, so when Jesus is, entering a town or a village, he was filled with compassion. And my hope and prayer is that as a church, we would be given a healthy dose of compassion at this hour and this stage in our communities. So a few next steps that we want to uh, invite you to join us in as a conference. So um, everyone who is uh, an appointed pastor in our conference, you hopefully have already received an email about this and responded. But 
Um, we are going to be giving every, every one of our leaders a copy of a book called White Awake, written by um, a pastor in Chicago, a white pastor, very multi-ethnic church. And uh, he, he shares kind of his own journey with wrestling with um, you know, some of the things that we've discussed tonight and then how he's, he's leading the church in anti-racism. And I, I think it's, uh, it'll be a good, good thing for us to look at as well. Um, Monica Harold referenced Laura Hunt offering uh, Be the Bridge courses um, in, through New Beginnings. And I know she's willing to work with other churches uh, to offer that as well. And so we would love to, to give you more information on that. And then we anticipate having uh, a few more of these panel conversations and inviting some other voices in and, and hearing uh, about how some of our other leaders are responding to this and um, responding to the injustice that they're seeing in their community. Um, what I want to just ask and challenge everyone watching tonight to do is we believe that the Holy Spirit has been at work uh, throughout this conversation, that we believe the Holy Spirit's been speaking to and through us, that the Holy Spirit's been speaking to you. And so when we sign off tonight, I, I want to just encourage you and invite you to just take a few moments and just ask yourself, what is the Holy Spirit saying to me? What do I sense the Holy Spirit saying to me? And what is one thing that I can do about it? There's been a lot of great next steps that have been shared tonight. What is one thing uh, that as you listen to the voice of the Spirit that you can do um, to take that step towards being a headlight in your community and in your church? We want to thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, there's a lot to process, and um, we are, we're grateful to, to uh, get this conversation started. It's long overdue. And we look forward to seeing what the Lord is going to do uh, in and through our responses uh, to what's going on in, in our nation and our churches right now. Uh, Dr. Sheila, I'd love to invite you to close our time in prayer tonight. And before you do, can I make one correction? Um, Absolutely. Um, Pastor Laura is offering those classes through Journey of Faith with Pastor Christian um, Woodworth. Very good. Thank you, Pastor Jeff. Okay. Sheila. Well, Father, we do thank you for how great you are. And Father, we just come before you, Lord God, just asking, Lord God, that you would touch the hearts of your people, oh God. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus that you would break down the walls of division, even in our minds, oh God, in the name of Jesus. And Father, I pray, Father, that this will not just be another video or another session that people listen to but father i pray in the name of jesus that your holy spirit oh god will open them up in so many new ways oh god and father that they will not only lord god hear your voice but father that they will not just sit there but father that they will be doers of your words and not just hearers only oh god and father i pray lord god for each and every one of us that's on this panel Lord God, I pray that you will continue to bless us and keep us, oh God, and encourage us, oh God. And Father, I pray for new relationships, even with us, oh God, that we will be able to speak the truth in love. And Father, we just thank you, Lord God, for what you're going to do in the Southern Michigan Conference. And we do thank you, Lord God, for your spirit being upon the conference. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, thank you everyone for participating tonight and thank you to all who are watching. Uh, have a great night. Good night. Good night.
SMC Podcast.